So, how many of you are familiar with the Peanuts comic strip? You know, Char Charles Schultz? Schultz? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Linus and Lucy and Snoopy and Charlie Brown and all that. Well, there's this one um, strip, this uh, sequence where Linus has just written a comic strip. It's, it's his own comic strip. He wants to, to get uh, the uh, opinion of his sister Lucy. Really, he wants her approval. So he, uh, in the first frame, you see him and he looks kind of tentative, but he hands Lucy the comic strip and he says, Lucy, would you, uh, would you read this and, and just tell me if you think it's funny? And, uh, and then in the next frame, you see Lucy takes it and she starts patting her foot and she's... Uh, She's got this little bit of a grin coming across her face. And she looks at Linus and she says, Well, Linus, who wrote this? And Linus, you know, his chest heaves out and uh, he's got this great big grin on his face, you know. And he says, Lucy, I wrote that. And then, last frame, Lucy takes the comic strip in her hand, she just wads it up and she throws it away and she says, well then, I don't think it's very funny. <laughs> and then final frame, Linus picks up the comic strip, throws his blanket over his shoulder, he looks at Lucy and he says, big sisters are the crabgrass in the lawn of life. Some people, they, they just drag us down. They, they, they stress us out. They hold us back. They demotivate us. They are the crabgrass in the lawn of life. That's Lucy. But then there are other people who, they just lift people up wherever they go. They, they breathe life, they breathe hope into you. They, they, they make you laugh when you need to laugh. And they cry with you when you need to cry. And laugh or cry, they help you to know that you are not alone, that there's someone with you who is for you. They're there for you in the times of your deepest need. And they come alongside you in exactly the best way to meet you in that need. They make you want to be better. They make you want to do better. They, they, they inspire you by their attitude and their example. They encourage you. They pour courage into you. We've been doing a series for this uh, summer called Best Supporting Actors of the New Testament Lesser Known Characters. And this week, this weekend, we are talking about a man named Barnabas. That's not actually his uh, name. His name is Joseph. Barnabas was his nickname. He was, uh, uh, the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because that's who he was. Wherever he was, regardless of what people were facing, when Barnabas was with them, they felt encouraged. So we're going to start by reading a passage from 
uh, Acts chapter 4. We're going to read verses 32 to 37 in your pew Bibles, the pew Bibles in front of you. It's on page 773, okay? So Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this early church, marvelous, truly miraculous things are happening. They're together, one heart, one mind, and they're growing exponentially. Amazing things are happening. The church is overflowing, we're told, with God's grace. It's so powerfully at work in all of them. And in this church where so many amazing things are happening and where everybody is experiencing and living out the grace of God, there's somebody who stands out. That guy is Joseph. He stands out so much that in the midst of church where everybody seems to be experiencing grace and, and giving encouragement, that he stands out so much that they change his name. They said, you're the son of encouragement. You're the son of encouragement, Barnabas. Now, that word encouragement is the Greek word, paraklesis. It comes from two other Greek words that are put together. The word para, which means alongside, and kaleo, which means to call out. So paraklesis literally means uh, someone who is called to come alongside you to help renew and encourage you, to, to renew and comfort you. Paraklesis, someone who is called to come alongside you, to renew and comfort you. There's another Greek word. It's the Greek word parakletos. And that word is a word to refer to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the parakletos, the comforter, the encourager. So when the apostles call Joseph Barnabas, son of encouragement, what they're saying is, is something so, this man reminds us, it's something so special about him, he reminds us of the Holy Spirit. He's so fully open to the Holy Spirit that he does what the Holy Spirit does, that when, wherever Joseph is, that's where the Holy Spirit seems to be. Can you imagine what that would be like? Barnabas shows us what encouragement looks like, what encouragers do, what spirit-filled encouragers do. So, I'm going to highlight a number of characteristics of a spirit-filled encourager 
from the life of Barnabas. Now, the screen says six characteristics. So I preached a sermon last night, and I got through almost four of the six characteristics before my time actually went over <laughs> last night. So um, what that probably means is I might get the three of them this morning. <laughs> Yeah, the way it goes. <laughs> so what does a spirit-filled encourager look like? Well, first, a spirit-filled encourager gives freely, gives generously and gladly. We just read about this church where incredible things are happening. It says that, you know, they all experience the grace of God. Is powerfully at work in them. And Joseph, called Barnabas, son of encouragement, sells a field, uh, takes the proceeds, lays it at the apostles' feet. Now, but it raises a question. It seems like there's a lot of need in that church that people do that. So what's going on? Well, as I said, the church is growing exponentially. It's growing rapidly, really, really rapidly. On the day of Pentecost, you know, the, the church starts with about 120 people, then... Pentecost Sunday comes, what we call Pentecost, and Pentecost comes, and uh, Peter is preaching, and a spirit of the Holy Spirit f- comes upon the whole crowd, and in one day, actually in just a blink of an eye, 3,000 people believe and join the church, and it doesn't stop there. 3,000 join then, and every day after that, more and more people are, are joining the church, and it's blowing up. It's blowing out. It's, it's an incredible work of the Spirit. People are joining the church and they're staying. The growth is exciting and it's wonderful, but it's also chaotic and it's disruptive and it kind of creates a whole bunch of opportunities, problems they need to solve. Because it raises, how will these people live? Where are they going to find food? Where are they going to sleep? Most of these people are there because they came to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. They're from somewhere else. Pentecost for the Jews is a major, major religious holiday. And so, you know, the population of Jerusalem just swells, you know. It's like being on Cape Cod in the summer. You know, it just swells and then they go away. Except these people didn't go away. So you got to figure out oh, how do we meet these needs. And this was, a, you know, at that time, people, you know, they, they, vast majority of people didn't have any kind of funds stashed away, like a lot of people today. They didn't have, you know, a, a slush fund somewhere, an emergency fund. They lived day to day. They lived on what they could produce and scrounge for that day. So they didn't come with a lot of stuff. They didn't have a lot of resources that they could, you know, there were only a few people that had houses and, and fields and so forth that they could share. So, there's all this stuff. And the question is, how are they going to meet this? Now, the other thing that was true for people at that time is they helped one another in their family groups. Families worked, extended families helped one another. But these folks aren't from, with their extended families either. So, what happens? What happens is, is that the church itself becomes a new family for all of them. 
and they treat one another as family. They look out for one another as family. It's not based on blood, but it's based on their mutual faith in Jesus. And Luke writes, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no, there were no needy people among them. What they had, they shared. And so Barnabas takes this field that he owns and he sells it and he brings it. He lays it at the apostles' feet. What does that mean? It means that he gave it freely, no strings attached. He didn't say, okay, here's this. This is how I want you to spend it. He just lays it and he lets go of it. No strings attached. He trusts that the apostles will do whatever that needs to be done with it. And it's not a quid pro quo kind of thing. It's not, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. It's, it's not, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. You know, encouragers, spirit-filled encouragers. They're not looking for something back. They just scratch your back. They're just happy to scratch your back. They don't need you to scratch theirs. Something happened to these folks that freed them. Something happened to Barnabas, to Joseph, that freed him to be able to give like that. I think what happened to him is that Jesus became his treasure. Jesus taught, uh, in Matthew 13, has a parable about uh, somebody who's, uh, tilling a, uh, who's uh, clearing out a field, tilling a field, and he finds this treasure and goes and sells all that he had so that he can buy the field. He talks about a pearl merchant who's, who buys and sells pearls, and he finds this pearl that's so amazing that he goes and sells all his other pearls because he's found the one amazing pearl, and, he's, and, he, and he rejoices. These folks found a treasure. Barnabas found the treasure. Jesus was his treasure. And when Jesus is your treasure, then everything else in your life is just a tool. It's just a tool that you can use to love God and bless other people. When Jesus is your treasure, everything else is just a tool. Well, incredible things keep happening. And with those incredible things, the church continuing to grow, it makes the authorities anxious. It makes them feel threatened. The early church lived in constant fear of arrest and persecution, both from the Romans and from the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders. Now, why, why from the Jews? Well, it's because they thought, though there are, a lot of, there are probably a number of reasons, there are a number of reasons, but partly, mostly, I think it's because they thought that this was a heretical group. They weren't doing things the way that Jews have been doing things for, you know, thousands of years. They were worshiping a man named Jesus when the Jews knew that there's only one God, so a lot of these Jewish religious really believed that this was a blasphemous, uh, heretical, rebellious sect that needed to be wiped out. And so in Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested. They're imprisoned. They're threatened. 
They're told, stop preaching. You're, you know, bad, worse things are going to happen to you and all of your clan. In Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen is stoned, brutally, publicly stoned to death. And then persecution breaks out broadly and the whole church is scattered. Most of the, well, I should say most of the church in Jerusalem is forced to flee because there are people looking to imprison them and kill them. And at the center of this persecution is a man named Saul who's a religious zealot. And he's convinced that these people are blasphemed against God and they deserve death and he's out to make sure that that's what happens to him, Saul. He, he's, he participates in Stephen's stoning, and Luke refers to him as a ravager, a destroyer of the church. Well, Saul does all of this in Jerusalem, and then, you know, he's, he runs out of people to go after in Jerusalem, so he decides, I'm going to go to Damascus, because I heard that some of them are fleeing there, and we're going to root them all out. We're going to find them, and we're going to, we're going to take care of them. So he's on his way to Damascus. And as he's on his way, he has this encounter with Jesus. He's on his way, and Jesus just appears and knocks him literally on his tail. This is great big light, and he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And, and he has this encounter with Jesus that changes the whole course of Saul's life. And he recognizes, oh my gosh, I have been persecuting the Messiah of God. I have been persecuting his people. And Saul continues on his way to Damascus and uh, for those of you who were here last week, you heard this great sermon from Pastor Paul about Ananias. And Ananias was one of the folks that God, God gave him a vision to go to this guy Saul and help him connect with the church in Damascus. And Ananias does that, and Saul gets connected, and he starts preaching boldly the very opposite of what he'd been doing before. He starts preaching that Jesus is, in fact, the long-promised Messiah of God, and he ought to repent and believe and, and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, he experiences persecution. People are trying to kill him, so the church, the, the believers in Damascus, sneak him out of the city, and he decides he's going to go back to Jerusalem to find refuge with the church there. So he makes his way to Jerusalem. But when he gets to Jerusalem, the believers there sing, I don't think so, Tim. Because they think it's a scam. They, they, they just don't believe that he's really converted. They think what he's trying to do is to trick them, to fake them out, to, to fake his conversion so that he can infiltrate their ranks and then destroy them. And that's not mere paranoia in their part. That, that really makes a lot of sense. Because how, how can you go in the blink of an eye from trying to kill them to becoming their brothers and sisters. That just, you know, it's hard to believe, isn't it? 
They weren't willing. The text says that they were all afraid of him. This is Luke chapter 9. They were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. They were afraid of him. They weren't willing to take the risk of meeting with him because they thought for sure if they did, they would die. Nobody wants to take the risk except for Barnabas. Barnabas is the exception. He's willing to take the risk. It's a big risk. But he's willing to take the risk of meeting with Saul. He meets with him. He talks with him. And what he's doing is he's looking for signs of true change in Saul. And he concludes that the signs of change are there. They're unmistakable there. So he becomes an advocate for Saul before the believers in Jerusalem. And the believers in Jerusalem have so much trust in Barnabas, so much respect for him, that they accept his endorsement of Saul and they embrace him into the community of faith. It would take somebody like Barnabas to convince folks who are scared out of their tree to take that kind of risk of faith. Spirit-filled encouragers are courageous advocates for people who are on the margins that other people don't want to touch or be with for any number of reasons. And they're courageous advocates because they have an unshakable belief in the power of God to change lives. We live right now in a time of fear. We live in a climate where people are just trying to stoke our fear. And that kind of fear separates us, divides us from one another. Sometimes it divides us from the people who are most vulnerable, most in need of advocates. Fear clouds our vision. It clouds our vision so we can't see the grace of God at work in other people's lives. Faith, spirit-enabled faith, gives us eyes to see the work of God in them. Barnabas, like the other believers in Jerusalem, could have given in to fear. But because He's a person of faith, a person filled with the Holy Spirit. He's able to see a bigger picture. He's able to see the work of God being played out. And he becomes an advocate for for a person who needs advocacy. He he becomes an advocate for, for Saul. Well, meanwhile... Persecution keeps happening. The church in Jerusalem gets scattered. I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 23. It's on page 780 of our Pew Bibles. It's just continuing the story for a bit. Okay? Now, 
those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, to Gentiles also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Spirit-filled encouragers are givers. They give gladly, freely, generously. Spirit-filled encouragers are courageous advocates. Spirit-filled encouragers are also bridge builders. They're barrier breakers. They're build, bridge builders. Persecution scatters the church out of Jerusalem. They get scattered around. But wherever they go, they keep preaching the gospel of Jesus. Except most of them are preaching only to Jews. Now, why only Jews? Well, it's because the Jews were God's chosen people. They were God's chosen people. They were told to separate themselves from the idolatry of the pagan nations around them. And they took that kind of seriously in their history. They definitely separated themselves from other people, not always from their values, but from them. Um, what happened, though, is what God, God meant them to be his chosen people to demonstrate through the way they lived their lives what following the Lord God, the true God, would look like. So, for example, when Abraham is called out, he's called to be, a, you know, he's called... He's blessed by God. Why? To be a blessing to the nations. He's told that, that uh, he will be a blessing to the nations. And uh, so that's what Israel was supposed to be, blessing to all the nations by the way they lived. We're told that the church is supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world, for the sake of the world, to the glory of God. That's what the people of God are supposed to be. The Jews interpreted being God's, too often interpreted being God's chosen people as being chosen, the only chosen. They're the only ones deserving, if you will, of God's goodness. The rest of the world, well, they're on their own. Okay? And so they couldn't even imagine that God would care about the Gentiles, a lot of them still, even though they had been experiencing the grace of God at work in their own lives, and even though Jesus in his, in his own ministry on earth had reached out and blessed a number of Gentiles. It's, there's a cultural shift, there's a religious shift, there's a worldview shift that's hard to break, even when you truly, dramatically, powerfully experience the work of God in your life, it takes a while to seep into the whole of your life. Hadn't quite seeped into everybody yet in this church. But there are some others. They get to Antioch, and they, they start preaching to Jews. They start telling Jews about it, but they're so overjoyed by who Jesus is and what he's doing in their lives that they can't stop just with Jews. They start telling Gentiles as well. 
And there's a whole bunch of Gentiles that believe, and it's, whoa! Gentiles believing. And the first Gentile church is birthed in Antioch. A very cool work of God. The church in Jerusalem hears about what's happening. The Jewish church in Jerusalem hears about what's happened in Antioch, and they're not sure what to do with it. They're not sure what to do with a Gentile church. It's beyond the scope of their imagining. They're not sure it's legit. They're not sure it's kosher, if you will. I, I know that was a bad joke, but you can laugh. You know, so, so what do they do? So we, we got to find out if this is legit. Because they have a hard time imagining that it could be for a whole lot of reasons that I'll get to. But, so they send Barnabas. They send Barnabas to check it out. Now why Barnabas? Because they trust Barnabas's maturity and wisdom and relationship with God. And they, and they think Barnabas will figure out if this is what's going on here. And so, so they're, they're putting a lot of trust in him in this thing. Luke tells us Barnabas gets to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he recognizes that it's the grace of God. When he sees that, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So, three things. Spirit-filled encouragers. Recognize the grace of God. Spirit-filled encouragers. Rejoice in the grace of God. Spirit-filled encouragers. Encourage people to remain true and remain in the grace of God. I want to unpack that a bit, okay? They recognize God's grace. Now, you might say, well, of course, when Barnabas got to Antioch, of course, when he saw that, he, he was glad. I mean, God's at work. Gentiles are being converted. What else could anyone be but glad? Well, think of the prophet Jonah. God raises up Jonah and says, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians. And he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want God's grace to fall on the Assyrians. So he tries to flee the other way. Some of you know, a lot of you know the story. But what happens is that God catches up with him. And gets him back to, he gets him to Nineveh, and, and Jonah preaches. But he does it really begrudgingly. He's mad at God because God is forcing him to preach in Nineveh. Why is he mad? Because he knows that if he preaches, he knows that they will repent, and God's going to pour out his grace on them, and he just doesn't want it for them. He doesn't want God to be gracious to somebody else who's not a Jew. Barnabas is not like that. He goes there and he sees things happening there. He says, yes, yes, yes. This is the grace of God at work. It wasn't an obvious thing, though, for him to recognize it. You know, Barnabas knows Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a certain kind of city. Antioch is a completely different type of city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. 
It's a commercial capital. It's way, way bigger than Jerusalem. It's a commercial capital. It's also a city known for its moral depravity. Stuff happened in Antioch that we cannot talk about here. Okay. Utterly, utterly pagan city. Pagan in the sense of they followed all kinds of other gods and engaged in practices that were detestable to folks who grew up under the Jewish scriptures. You can think of it as a combination of New York City and Las Vegas, maybe. Crazy things happen in both places. So, if you were thinking about a place, one of the most unlikely places that God would be powerfully at work, Antioch would be on that list. So, entirely different type of city. But it's also probably the case, I'm sure it was the case, that the early church in Antioch was wildly different, vastly different than the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem were Jews who, would, who knew the character of God from the Old Testament scriptures. The, the church in Antioch, none of them knew anything. They didn't have the scriptures. They didn't grow up in the scriptures. They had grown up with false gods and all kinds of crazy stuff. They had no idea what was right and what was wrong. They needed to be taught. And so there, there's something real is happening in their midst, but, and it's, but it's, it's nuts. It's, you know, you know they, different cultural backgrounds, different ways of doing things, different, you know, different professions, all kinds. It, it's, uh, it's, it's like the Wild West out there. They just didn't know much. And even their worship services reflected that they didn't know much. And so that's what Barnabas comes into. He sees that they genuinely love God, however, even in the midst of something that he's never even seen before, no one's ever seen before. Now, you got to think about this. Antioch wasn't... Barnabas' home city. Antioch just wasn't that. And Gentiles weren't his people. Why should he care about the grace of God? How could he, how could he even notice it? It would have been hard. All these differences, different type of city, different type of kind of church, it, may, it, would, have make it, it would have made somebody who just sees the service, it would have made it hard for them to recognize that this was God's grace at work. But Barnabas sees below the surface to the heart. Spirit-filled encouragers are able to see below the surface to the heart of another person. And they resonate with what's going on in the heart and they, and they help to expand that heart, if you will. That's what Barnabas is doing. Now, he recognizes it and he rejoices in it. He doesn't just try to fix them, to make them so that they look like the church in Jerusalem. He just rejoices in what's happening, how it's happening in that city. Just because something is different doesn't mean something is wrong. But that's hard for us to get. It's really hard for us 
to think that because something that different is okay. I, I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, and uh, I can tell you Greek Orthodox services are really different than the services we have here at the journey. I came, I kind of fell away from church uh, in my early teen years and uh, considered myself an atheist for a while and came back to faith when I was a college student. And it was during the time of the Jesus revolution in the church where a bunch of hippies uh, came to faith. I was one of those. You know, long hair and a ZZ Top beard and all of that. I, I know some of you are thinking, he had hair once that was long? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, so, so I have this Greek Orthodox background, those services, and then I was part of a hippie church, if you will, while I was in college. But I also was told, you've got to find a church when you go back home for the summer. So I go back home for the summer and I find this, I look in the yellow pages and they're listed alphabetically. This is an assembly of God church. It's only about a mile and a half away from where I live and I could walk there. So I walk there and I walk and I've talked, I've told this story before, I think, a couple times. And this church was locked in the 50s. Narrow ties, white shirts, jackets, short, short hair, long dresses for the women. I mean, you know, you know, for, for you know, Vastly different from Greek Orthodox Church. Vastly different from the hippie church is part of. But they were the warmest, friendliest people. I walked in with my torn jeans and my long, long hair. And there's nobody, literally nobody in the church, that small church that looked like me. And I, and I froze and this older woman came to me. And she says, you, you look like you're new here. <laughs> you know, and she invited me to sit with her, and then she invited me to join her family for lunch afterwards, and they embraced me. Now, uh, some time later, I found out that one of the elders of that church drove by me in his truck with his wife as I was walking the church, and when he drove by me, he looked at his wife and says, now there's a stiff that needs God. He told me this later. We became really good friends. He told me this later, and, and he kind of apologized for it. And I said, well, it's true. I was, I'm a stiff that needs God. <laughs> you know, so that, no problem there. But, you know, vastly different, but the grace of God at work. I brought my brother Charlie to that church, and partway through, he got really freaked out, and he literally ran out. I had to go chasing him. He, he never came back. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but he did get baptized a few, just several years. He got baptized here. I baptized him here. Thanks be to God. Sometimes it's hard for us to recognize God's grace and to be glad about it because it looks so different from what we're used to. But Barnabas could get past all of that. He recognized, he rejoiced in it, and then we're told he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord. To remain true to the Lord. Now, have you ever started something? You started with a lot of energy, a lot of passion, and it's going great for a little bit, for a while, 
But then you kind of start losing some of that passion and you get kind of bogged down. And uh, wow, I'm way over my time. So yeah, I'll get to two things. <laughs> so um, and you get bogged down and uh, you quit. I've had that happen with me. But there are other times maybe that where you've started something, a lot of passion, a lot of energy, and you get bogged down, and then somebody comes alongside you, and they remind you why you started this thing in the first place, and they walk with you, and they help you to persevere so that you, f- you actually finish what you started. You, you keep going. I've had that happen with me too. That's what Barnabas did in his church in Antioch. It says that he encouraged them to remain true, and it wasn't just words. He stayed with them, and he kept teaching. They didn't know anything, and he spent a long time teaching them the scriptures, giving them a foundation that would help them to remain true, to, to persevere in faith. And that becomes one of the great churches in the New Testament. Antioch becomes the, the, a great church, a mission-sending church, a mission-supporting church. Antioch becomes a great church because Barnabas is a spirit-filled encourager who gives them what they need to, to remain true and to keep growing, not get bogged down. And he does that because he knows if he doesn't, they're going to be wiped out because hard times will come, and they did come. But Antioch is given what they need to make it through. So, Barnabas, spirit-filled encourager, Now, I want to read the next verse in Acts 11. Verse 24. This is Luke's summary, if you will, kind of a summary statement about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. That's the the legacy of Barnabas' life. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. Can you imagine anything better than that being said of you? I wish people said that about I hope it becomes a case sometime, someday, that people can say that about me. What a man. What a man. He shows us what, what, what happens when we surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we give ourselves to it, our lives are changed, they are expanded. We lean into God and we lean, live outside of ourselves and amazing things happen around us. People are encouraged. We live in a world that has way too much crabgrass, if you will, in the lawn of our lives. And we need people like Barnabas We need people like Barnabas who will encourage us and strengthen us, who will press courage into us and help us to make it through. And may it be that we become people like Barnabas individually and as a church. Amen? Let's pray.